Welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. This month, with the commemoration of the First World War in mind, we'll be talking about conflicts past and present. I'll be joined by Brian Turner, a former infantryman who served in Iraq and then turned poet, and discussing his new memoir, My Life as a Foreign Country. We'll also explore how the First World War poets influenced him. And we'll be talking to Emily Mayhew about her book, Wounded, a homage to those who cared for and saved the lives of soldiers wounded on the Western Front. But to begin with, here's the first of two readings by Sebastian Folks, taken from his seminal novel, Birdsong, first published 21 years ago. The mine went up on the ridge, a great leaping core of compacted soil, the earth eviscerated. Flames rose to more than 100 feet. It was too big, Stephen thought. The scale appalled him. Shockwaves from the explosion ran through the trench. Brennan was pitched forward off the fire step and broke his leg. We must go now, thought Stephen. No word came. Byrne looked questioningly at him. Stephen shook his head. Still ten minutes. German fire began at once. The lip of the British trench leapt and spat soil where machine guns raked it. Stephen ducked, men shouting. Not yet, Stephen screaming the air above the trench now solid, the second hand of his watch in slow motion, twenty-nine passed, the whistle in his mouth, his foot on the ladder. He swallowed hard and blew. He clambered out and looked around him. It was for a moment completely quiet as the bombardment ended and the German guns also stopped. Skylarks wheeled and sang high in the cloudless sky. He felt alone, as though he had stumbled on this fresh world at the instant of its creation. Then the artillery began to lay down the first barrage, and the German machine guns resumed. To his left, Stephen saw men trying to emerge from the trench, but being smashed by bullets before they could stand. The gaps in the wire became jammed with bodies. Behind him, the men were coming up. He saw Grey run along the top of the trench, shouting encouragement. He walked hesitatingly forward, his skin tensed for the feeling of metal tearing flesh. He turned his body sideways, tenderly, to protect his eyes, He was hunched like an old woman in the cocoon of tearing noise. Byrne was walking beside him at the slow pace required by their orders. Stephen glanced to his right. He could see a long, wavering line of khaki, primitive dolls progressing in tense, deliberate steps, going down with a silent flap of arms, replaced, falling, continuing, as though walking into a gale. He tried to catch Byrne's eye, but failed. The sound of machine guns was varied by the crack of snipers and the roar of the barrage ahead of them. He saw Hunt fall to his right. Stud bent to help him, and Stephen saw his head opening up bright red under machine gun bullets as his helmet fell away. His feet pressed onwards gingerly over the broken ground. After twenty or thirty yards there came a feeling that he was floating above his body, that it had taken on an automatic life of its own, over which he had no power. It was as though he had become detached, in a dream, from the metal air through which his flesh was walking. In this trance there was a kind of relief, something close to hilarity. Ten yards ahead and to the right was Colonel Barclay. He was carrying a sword. Stephen went down. Some force had blown him. He was in a dip in the ground with a bleeding man, shivering. The barrage was too far ahead. Now the German guns were placing a curtain of their own. Shrapnel was blasting its jagged cones through any airspace not filled by the machine guns. All that metal will not find room enough, Stephen thought. It must crash and strike sparks above them. The man with him was screaming inaudibly. 
Stephen wrapped his dressing round the man's leg, then looked at himself. There was no wound. He crawled to the rim of the shell hole. There were others ahead of him. He stood up and began to walk again. Perhaps with them he would be safer. He felt nothing as he crossed the pitted land on which humps of khaki lay every few yards. The load on his back was heavy. He looked behind and saw a second line walking into the barrage in no man's land. They were hurled up like waves breaking backwards into the sea. Bodies were starting to pile and clog the progress. There was a man beside him missing part of his face, but walking in the same dreamlike state, his rifle pressing forward. His nose dangled and Stephen could see his teeth through the missing cheek. The noise was unlike anything he had heard before. It lay against his skin, shaking his bones. Remembering his order not to stop for those behind him, he pressed slowly on. As the smoke lifted in front of him, he saw the German wire. It had not been cut. Men were running up and down it in turmoil, looking for a way through. They were caught in the coils where they brought down torrents of machine gun fire. Their bodies jerked up and down, twisting and jumping. Still they tried. Two men were clipping vainly with their cutters among the corpses, their movement bringing the sharp, disdainful fire of a sniper. They lay still. Thirty yards to his right, there was a gap. He ran towards it, knowing it would be the focus of machine gun fire from several directions. He breathed in as he reached it, clenching for his death. His body passed through clean air, and he began to laugh as he ran and ran, then rolled down into a trench, bumping his heavy pack on top of him. There was no one there. Alive, he thought. Dear God, I am alive. Brian Turner served in the US Army for seven years, during which he was deployed to Bosnia and Iraq. An award-winning poet, his first collection, Here Bullet, picked up where Wilfred Owen and Keith Douglas left off, and his second, Phantom Noise, was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. His new memoir, My Life as a Foreign Country, retraces his war experience and was described by The Times as a work of art. Thanks so much for joining us today, Brian. I just wanted to start, if I could, by asking you about what you felt when you turned the news on. I mean, the world is never a quiet place, but at the moment it seems as though conflict of such a serious nature is in so many different parts of it. And I think it's impossible for anyone to watch it without having all sorts of emotions and thoughts. But we are, most of us, non-combatants and we'll, we'll stay that. And I wonder how it felt for someone in your position. And, you know, when I turn on the news now, I see, for example, in Gaza, I know that the Israeli soldiers are kicking in people's doors and going into their homes. And for me, um, it's very tricky because from my own experience, I was in the military for seven years and uh, our training, I was an infantryman, our training was uh, we were directly derived from the Israeli military. So I learned how to go into a room with a fire team from the Israeli manual. And, and so, you know, there are echoes in my own, my own experience with what I see on the news that are disturbing. Uh, when I see Ukraine, um, I think of friends I have now, poets that I've met over the years, uh, and I, I worry about their family members. My, my father he speaks Russian, and so, you know, I've had a deep affinity for the Russian language all my life. And, you know, and I'm just talking for a very personal thing. Mm. But when we get to Iraq with um, the Islamic State and uh, this idea of a caliphate and it's uh, it's disturbing, uh, and I'm, I worry for people that I, I met over the, in Iraq. I, I hear back home 
because the question is similarly is put before veterans there as well. And many of them seem deeply disturbed and, and troubled by the fact that, that they'd put so much work into whatever it is they thought that they were a part of. And they feel it's being unraveled at this point. And um, for me, I don't really, it's not, that's not really where I go with my thinking. I'm really concerned about uh, the Iraqi people in a sort of a generational sense. Because it goes back, you know, the, if you imagine yourself as a, someone who lives in Baghdad or Tikrit or Ramadi, places maybe none of us have ever been to, and to imagine that they've had war all this time since, say, say 2001. And before that, they were what were called the sanction years. But if there were people occasionally bombing parts of California, I don't think Californians would call that a sanction, you know. It's a very sterile word. Um, it was low-level intensity uh, conflict that was still taking place. And there was 1991 war before that, right? And then just a, a short respite between that and the, the war with Iran, where a million people died, I believe. There are people that, have been, that are in their mid-30s or so that have never done a simple thing like this. And just take a breath. They've never taken a breath in a time that wasn't a war. And in my own country, a country that has prosecuted several wars, there are people who've been born, say, since 1991 onwards that haven't also... Not, they haven't done that once in their life where they weren't at war, and yet they're so obscenely wealthy that they don't even realize that they've been at war. And so it troubles me when I see it in the news because I feel like for people back home, it's a news story, and they can be, you know, be affected by it, and then they just change the channel to some other thing. And, and they, I understand it. There are things we have to worry about. We have bills to pay. We have you know, our lives to attend to. But there are massive things happening in the world. And what can one individual voice do to attend to those problems? Essentially, this is the subject of your memoir, isn't it? I mm. mean, it is a very unconventional memoir. It is not a sort of straightforward, I did this, then this happened. I felt like this about it A to B. I mean, it is about the experience of war. It's about the feeling that war gives you. It's about wanting to be part of something. There is a fascinating part where you explain and also don't explain why you joined up. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of war in all its aspects that you're attempting to, to address. Yeah, I'm trying to understand. I set out initially with a very simple question, which I was often asked at poetry readings in the Q&A afterwards, where people would say, why did you join the army? And there's a shorthand where I part, there's several there's several reasons, but one of the reasons um, I would give a general shorthand, which I would say, um, you know, I come from a long military, my, in my family there's a long military tradition or something along those lines. And that answer doesn't really, an well, I mean, what does that mean? So this book was initially an attempt to try to answer that in a deeper way, looking at, when I look generationally in my own family, at uh, the influences that layer into my own, the inheritance that I get from service in uniform, and whatever the good and bad may be from that, um, or the difficult and the amazing or surprising that may come from that. And then what I found is I never really was able to answer that question in the book, and other questions that I think are perhaps more profound uh, began to appear. Um, like, why is it that nations go to war? And what is trauma? How is trauma handed off in a family from one generation to another? And what are the after effects of trauma? How does that cycle through and repeat itself, maybe unwittingly? In your book, I mean, the theatres mm. that you're sort of explaining that in are mm. Iraq and then Bosnia primarily, aren't mm. they? Yeah. 
and those are the, the places that you have had most sort of direct first-hand experience and what did you manage to come to any conclusions was it just a, a question of, of just finding more questions to, to pose well I often um, paraphrase a writer I believe it's William Matthews to say that the job of the writer isn't to pose the solution to the questions but the job of the writer is to ask the questions more clearly I'm not trying to be coy with that because I think it's useful to ask questions very clearly I also believe in the contract between the writer and the reader it's a great honor to be a part of that, that contract. And what I mean is, is that the books and the, the stories that we share um, are completed in the reader. So it isn't as if I don't want to be, I'm not the type of writer that's going to write something that is, you know, I'm writing about A, here's A, did you get A? You know, to make sure that I'm very clear. I don't, I don't want to be sort of a fascist writer. And I don't mean that to denigrate other writers. It's just the way I approach the page is that I want to explore and find things that trouble me and are difficult for me and, they, and find perhaps complicity in my own life in the things that I've been a part of and the, that are large-scale large events like war. And then if I share that with another, perhaps they might find their own troubled waters within themselves and perhaps they might find their own complicity and maybe they'll do something about it. One of the places that you do this, as well as your memoir, of course, is in poetry, isn't it? You've written mm -hmm. two poetry collections. So w were you a poetry writer before you were an infantryman, or was it something sure. that only came afterwards? You know, in, in fact, I wrote seven manuscripts before the first published book. So my first published book is really my eighth book. And then my then I wrote another manuscript, uh, a collection of love poems that I just don't think are good enough. And so I didn't publish those. That's my seven, eighth, ninth book, um, unpublished. And then my second published book is my tenth book, uh, Phantom Noise. <laughs> so there's a, lot, yeah. there's a lot of poetry there. Yes, um, absolutely. What can you do in poetry that you can't do in other forms of writing, that you can't do if you tried to just write more straightforward prose? Hmm. Um, this is a fascinating question for me because it gets to the heart of war writing as well. And we look at war literature. Um, you know, before going to combat, I had read numerous novels on war, um, seen many films over the course of my life. And then when I went to combat, I did not find what I find in those narratives. Because usually it's a straight through line. And you'll see there's a, there's a group of guys, you know, soldiers or whatever they might be, and they have to go and they have to blow up a bridge. Or they have to go and hold the bridge bef to a certain point to keep the enemy, whoever the enemy is, at bay. Um, this, this is a common narrative. Basically, there's a, there's a hero figure, a protagonist that we follow through into a difficult space beyond the limits of normal civilization, what we might consider civilization, out into the wild with, an, with another group of people around them. And this main character that we follow will sustain losses through those, his or her comrades as they go through this, this journey. Um, absorbing the losses. And we as readers or viewers hovering over the scene, somewhat the trans there's a transference of this absorption of loss. So we feel for the main character as they gain in knowledge about life and death. And they go into this difficult place. They go through a test of fire. And then they come back home if they make it out. And they don't talk about it. And that's, that's the common, that's a very common hero's narrative. You see it through the centuries. And then when I went to combat, that is not what I found. And poetry lent itself I think very well to, to this experience that I felt or that I took part in. And that is, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there was sort of a year of boredom 
to be honest. And hopefully that's not in any of the books. Cause, you well, know, it is a little bit in the memoir in the sense that you <laughs> do give a sense of that kind mm. of terrible pressure of hanging around, right, waiting right. for stuff to happen, stuff that is probably not going to be very good. Yeah, yeah, which creates all kinds of pressures. And in the poetry collections, it doesn't really appear. And, and that may be a, f- a fault in the collections. But what, what happens is that when I was there, I was writing my first poetry collection, uh, Here Bullet, uh, in my notebooks. And basically, I would just respond to a moment, something that happened maybe two days ago or two weeks ago, and so I'd write about it. The poetry seemed like a perfect vehicle to look at that specific moment or a few series of moments uh, without trying to interlink them. The difficulty came when I came home, uh, started when I came home because I had to take those poems out of my notebooks. And then how do I put them into a book which creates a sequence and then creates and it starts to maybe superimpose a narrative over it with the voice itself, similar to that protagonist that I was speaking about in the journey before. So the fragmentation, I guess, which is what I learned partially as a poet, helped me, I believe, to write this memoir because I, I was able to think in those terms. Although if I step away from it, I believe that if I hadn't written poetry, I still would have had to write this memoir the way it's written because it mirrors in ways not only the experience but maybe in a deeper sense the the experience of trauma and combat, which in memory, because it comes, all of those work in fragments and flashes and pieces, and it's hard to, to recover afterwards, to try to make sense. And that's what I've tried to do with this book, is to take those pieces in a kind of pointillistic way to create a mosaic that maybe I can step back from and make sense of the experience. And do you feel, just to, just to follow on from that, that the idea of making art of whatever kind as a sort of catharsis, I mean, do you feel that's a, just a sort of a myth, as it were? Do you think that's something that's possible? Or do you uh, think it's something that people who would like it to be right. possible kind of make up? I think there are a lot of people that would like it to be so. I, I, perhaps it is that way for others. I have experienced writing one of the manuscripts I wrote years ago felt very cathartic as I was writing poetry. But everything else, this book, um, the books that I've written before um, that were published, they weren't cathartic. When I wrote the poems in Iraq in my notebook, they, they didn't feel cathartic because the pressure that, that forced me to pick up the pen and, and, and put words onto paper was still there. It was, death was hovering very present in the moment, and it was waiting for me to finish the poem, and it would still be there. It was there as I wrote the poem, and it would be there tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. This book is not cathartic in, in the writing, but at the same time... Um, there are two parts to this. One is, when I was in uniform writing the poems, I can see now, looking back, that it was a space that was beyond the role of Sergeant Turner. So my life there was very much, when I was in uniform, I was very much Sergeant Turner, which is just a role, but it's too small of a space for a human being to really live in and inhabit. So the notebooks were a space for my imagination to wander and be a part of my fuller self. So I think it, over time, that was a very, maybe not cathartic, but it was healthy. And maybe in a similar way, if you ask me this question 10 years from now, I'll be able to look back at this book and see that it helped me to process my life and to find a way to integrate my war experiences because there isn't a way of getting them off my chest. And I think it would be an injustice to the people who died on all sides of the people who were maimed and injured and traumatized for me to sort of be able to compartmentalize an experience, get it off my chest and put it on a shelf. And I'm okay the rest of my life. I don't really, I would wish that for other veterans, for example, but I don't think that's available for me. That's not a life I would choose, but I have to find a way to integrate it with my life as I move forward so that hopefully I can have a healthy life in the years to come. 
Well, we hope you do come back and talk to us in <laughs> 10 years or actually before that. Sure. Um, yeah. Many thanks for coming and speaking to us today, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you. Emily Mayhew is a historian looking into the medical treatment of severe casualty in 20th and 21st century warfare. In her new book, Wounded, The Long Journey Home from the Great War, she tells the story of the kind of journey the injured soldiers would take from the battlefield to recovery in Britain. Thank you very much for joining us, Emily. Just explain to me how this book came into being, how you started to think about working on it. It started off as as quite a boring academic book because I work in a university. And as I was researching it, I realised that I was coming across stories that deserved the broadest possible audience. And so I, I made a leap of faith and took a deep breath and decided to try and write in a more popular way. Popular is, the, popular is perhaps the wrong word, but in a way where I paid attention to the writing. In particular, the stories of the stretcher bearers. There were unconventional people in the story that don't really appear much in the standard historical accounts. People like stretcher bearers, like orderlies, uh, people who who don't... uh, The most common question I'm asked is, what are the greatest medical innovations in the First World War? And everybody wants to say a piece of equipment or, or a drug. But in fact, it's a group of people, the stretcher bearers, who make sure that people don't die where they fall. And they were people who were right... In the battlefield. They were right in the battlefield. And within three months, it was realised they needed more training. And so they were taken back to England, uh, or more of them were recruited, and they were given what we would now call combat medical technician training. Not doctors, but with a very specific medical medical skill set. And simply no one had picked up on it. Uh, Part of the problem was they weren't great diary writers. They weren't doctors. They hadn't been to university. They didn't grow up in in an environment where you, you kept a diary or aimed, kept notes so you could write a book after the war. A few of them did. And a few of them, thank the Lord, were interviewed by the Imperial War Museum in the 1970s. And so I did have some very immediate, pretty much untouched sources for this amazing group of people, the stretcher bearers. And were they members of the armed forces or were they civilians who'd signed up? Were they volunteers? Initially, they were members of the armed forces and they were usually people who were quite big or were in the band. So they were used to carrying heavy things around. Mm. So initially, the criteria to be a stretcher bearer was that you had time on your hands while you were at the front and you were strong but it was very quickly realized that they needed to have some medical skills as well so if if you came across a man who was very badly wounded you needed to be able to stop him bleeding and stopping bleeding is a really complex medical skill and so those that were there were taken back for training and then people were specifically recruited to join the stretcher bearer corps and in fact it became people did it if they when their parents said well don't join the army once there was there was a conscription their parents said well you know if you join the army there's not much of a career in it but if you join the stretcher bearers you might get some skills you can use after the war and a number of them go into the into stretcher bearing even though it's dangerous and very difficult because they think they'll get skills they can use after the war what immediately comes to mind when we think of the first world war and of the casualties in it is of course the scale of them it's those numbers that come to us of men killed and wounded on the first day of the Somme for example and it's very difficult to imagine how the stretcher bearers the doctors the nurses could possibly have dealt with casualties in in that those numbers how did they even begin i have i wish i had an answer for you because i don't know i think what people learned to do was kind of wear a set of blinkers so that you only saw what was in your sector your trench your hospital ward your hosp- your field hospital i think it's the only way and i do see that Pe- people write they say i have no idea what's going on in any part of the line and i can't really remember what's happening at home and i think that's what they do they just set some limits by which they can function i read a diary of a nurse who told of her casualty clearing station her field hospital which was inundated with some casualties and most of them 
couldn't be dealt with on the first night that they were received. So they were left outside the hospital on stretcher bed, on stretchers. And they went round, the nurses went round and made up little packs that had a water bottle, some dressings, um, a, a little bit of food in and, and distributed them or left them to the people on the stretchers. So in a way they could sort of treat themselves, keep themselves alive. And she said she found herself running because, to do this. And she just ran that whole first night because she said, if I stopped running, I didn't know that I would ever be able to work again. So the answer is, I don't know. I think they focused down. But looking back now, I still don't really understand how you did that, not just week after week, but month after month and then year after year. Was it also the case that the medical staff were seeing different kinds of injuries? Was this a, a, a different sort of nature of war, as it were? It was certainly different to the wars that had gone before 1914. In previous wars, in what were the, effectively the colonial wars, primarily in Africa or in the Middle East, you saw seven out of ten people in your ward had diseases. So they had cholera and dysentery and typhoid and, and diphtheria and all those kind of transmissible diseases that are really to do with environment and public health. In the First World War, it's completely the opposite. Nine out of ten people, until the flu outbreak start, have got terrible wounds. And they've got wounds that no one's anticipated because the weapons are so much higher velocity, higher power. So it isn't just a question of a bullet going in and stopping. The bullet goes in, goes on going in, transmits energy, and, and is kind of the casualty gift that goes on giving. It really blows people apart. Now, obviously, then you followed the journey for this book from those casualty clearing stations, those field hospitals, right back to Britain, where, of course, you know, the most serious injuries uh, were, were brought. Absolutely. And I looked at it, I tried to look at it really in, in, in a logistics and process type way. And I hope that doesn't put readers off because that's where the real story is. The nuts and bolts of casualty clearing is railways and people move, people being able to pick someone up from one place and take them to another. And so I discovered that the ambulance trains were really like hospitals on wheels, that they were supposed to take six or eight hours to get the patients from the field hospital where they'd first been brought after they were wounded to the ports where they would be taken on hospital ships home to Britain. But in fact, they were fourth priority on the rails. You had the troop uh, uh, replenishment trains, the shell replenishment trains and the general supply trains. And then and only then those trains had gone past were the casualty trains, the ambulance trains allowed to go on. So quite often they spent whole days in sidings waiting for other trains to go past. And you had this, uh, and this got worse and worse, the worse the battles were. You had more casualties from the Somme, more shells needed, more reinforcements needed. The more casualties there were, the longer the waits in the in the ambulance trains. And so looking really closely at those dimensions of medical care opened up this whole other world. Nurses who'd expected to be on these trains for hours at a time found, in fact, that they had wards of their own, their carriages, and they had to sustain the energy and the spirit of the men in their carriages. And presumably with a lot of people dying in transit. And a, Well, fewer. The ones that were likely to die in transit didn't make it onto the trains. You really only made it onto the trains if they thought you could survive the journey. You had special wards in the field hospitals where people were taken if they didn't think they'd make it for the next 24 hours. But then what you, it meant that you had people who needed a great deal of treatment, who needed to be kept alive, who perhaps needed had a facial injury and needed to be fed only a liquid diet. You know, you had people whose dressings needed changing all the time. And one of the things that they all do once they realise, the nurses, that they're going to be on these trains for a long time, is they make curtains for their carriages because they said there was nothing more downheartening to their patients than sitting in a siding all all wounded, all the men in the in the carriages wounded, seeing a train go by full of new whole reinforcements who had no idea of the fate that lay ahead of them.
And obviously, one of the things that you're describing is also the part in the war that was played by women who had not previously really entered the arena of war to such an extent. Absolutely. This is the closest that so many women ever get to the front line. There are people who go to the front line in other wars, before anyone writes in, but this is this is thousands and thousands of women who make the decision to go to the front line. And it's not a coincidence. At the beginning of the war, the Pankhursts suspend the campaign for suffragism. And they say, we will prove our fitness for citizenship in other ways. And this may mean working in a factory. It may, may mean taking over the job of a bus driver. But primarily, it means actually actively contributing to the war itself. And the main way to do this was to be nurses, nurses or ambulance drivers, orderlies, all those kind of jobs that they could take. And the nurses arrive in their thousands to conditions that they're not expecting, that in fact, no one is expecting. So they very much have to pull together as a team. And it's something I'm always paying attention to when I'm looking at um, television films and television programmes, because quite often those kinds of representations of nurses are very class-based. You have the posh nurse, you have the professional nurse, you have the chirpy cockney nurse who doesn't really know what she's doing. In fact, it's more difficult than that. And I think much more interesting. All these people are thrown together in a situation where they're improvising, where the doctors they're working for improvising and they manage to get a grip on this extraordinary situation and I don't think that really has a great deal to do with class it has to do with the type of person you are. Talking about the images that we get of war, I mean, one of them definitely is of the very severely wounded soldier who doesn't die, who has evidently seen appalling sights and who after the war doesn't speak of his experience and you touch on that in a bit in the book and I wondered if you'd got an insight into what it was that meant that men didn't speak of what had happened to them. It's the single most common phrase I hear when I meet people they say to me oh my dad did that but of course he never talked about it. And I think it was simple. I think they, there were simple answers. They didn't want to revisit it. They didn't want to somehow bring it into their families because they didn't want their families to have to face this. And also, I don't think they had the words to describe it. They do go to regimental reunions and they do find themselves in circumstances where suddenly the memories tumble out. But they tend to be in a military context and they tend to be somewhere where they can control it. But I think it was just too big to deal with. One of the things, one of the reasons that I wrote Wounded was, and, and I focused on these people who hadn't really been focused on before, was that I wanted people to go to their attics and say, well, hang on a minute, my grandfather or my great uncle was a stretcher bearer. I didn't used to think that that was a particularly interesting job, but I've read Wounded now and I now know the kind of dedication and courage that was required. Obviously, we're talking um, this year and will do for the for the next four years so much about individual experience, individual lives. And I know you were part of um, of one of the commemorations, weren't you, most recently? Absolutely. I was very, very lucky enough to be asked by uh, the Dean of Westminster Abbey's office to contribute some material to the Westminster Abbey commemoration vigil on the night of the 4th of August. Um, and uh, it was it was a, a, a relatively tricky because I'm quite often asked to contribute to material and it's very, it's quite an easy thing to do. I can do I can do it from any period and any time. But in this particular case, they were very clear and they have a, had a very clear conception of what the vigil should be and that we, we couldn't have anything from after January 1915. 
I was able to find some lovely material, a soldier writing very enthusiastically that he was going to war and telling his girlfriend that when he came home, he would feel exactly the same about her as he did that day. I knew, of course, that this was a man who would have, who would lose a great deal of his face to a, to a wound and that he would feel exactly the same about her, but he would certainly look very different. And I knew what would happen to him. In fact, although his life was blighted by it, she loved him no matter what and they married and had a happy life and, ch- and a family together. And then we also found a piece from an army chaplain writing about observing the war from inside a church. And that was beautifully read by one of today's army chaplains in the Abbey. That was wonderful to hear. And the last uh, section we had was a woman who wrote a diary to her baby son who had just been born and she'd sent him away because she was concerned about him being in London during the war. And instead, she wrote a diary to uh, letters to him in the form of a diary. And she said, I, I, and she was very good. She said, I don't know how long that this will go on for. And I, it may be difficult to explain this to you by the time you're 20, because you'll, you'll probably think that this all sounds a little crazy. Um, but I'm going to do the best I can. So in fact, having the limits that the Abbey set was, was an amazingly rich, uh, provided an amazingly rich set of sources for me. I was, I was really happy to be included in and that. And it certainly, that beca- it was a wonderful wonderful ceremony. I'm, I'm, I hope you thought so. I'm glad, glad you thought so. Many thanks for coming in to tell us about Wounded. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for the August podcast and many thanks to Brian Turner, Emily Mayhew and Sebastian Folks. Join us again next month where we have two very special vintage authors in conversation. And don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk. We'll end our First World War commemorative podcast with a second reading by Sebastian Folks from his novel Birdsong. I don't know how the days pass. The anger and the blood have gone. We sit and read. There is always someone sleeping, someone strolling. Food is brought. We don't read real books, only magazines. Someone is eating. There are always others unaccounted for or absent. Since Weir died, I've not been very close to reality. I'm in a wilderness beyond fear. Time has finally collapsed for me. I had a letter from Jeanne this morning. She said two months have passed since we met. Men come out from England like emissaries from an unknown land. I cannot picture what it means to be at peace. I do not know how people there can lead a life. The only things that sometimes jolt us back from this trance are memories of men. In the set of the eyes of some conscripted boy, I see a look of Douglas or Reeve. I find myself rigid with imagining. I can see that man's skull opening as he bent down to his friend that summer morning. Yesterday, a signaller came up to talk, and his gestures reminded me of Weir. I had a clear picture of him, not sprawling in the mud as I last saw him, but emerging from his burrow in the ground, wild-eyed. The image lasted only for an instant, then time collapsed and drifted past me once again. I have been summoned to see Grey tomorrow. Perhaps he will feel the same. We are not contemptuous of gunfire, but we have lost the power to be afraid. Shells will fall on the reserve lines, and we will not stop talking. There is still blood, though no one sees. A boy lay without legs where the men took their tea from the cooker. They stepped over him. I have tried to resist the slide into this unreal world, but I lack the strength. I am tired. Now I am tired in my soul. Many times I have lain down and I have longed for death. I feel unworthy. I feel guilty because I have survived. Death will not come and I am cast adrift in a perpetual present. I do not know what I have done to live in this existence. I do not know what any of us did 
to tilt the world into this unnatural orbit. We came here only for a few months. No child or future generation will ever know what this was like. They will never understand. When it is over, we will go quietly among the living, and we will not tell them. We will talk and sleep and go about our business like human beings. We will seal what we have seen in the silence of our hearts, and no words will reach us.